Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show goes to those places where you have those mastermind meetings and discover those aha moments that can change your trajectory or at least bring you a little bit closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. I invite you to picture yourself sitting in on a mastermind conversation and finding those little morsels of wisdom. We don't have a $25,000 high quality Hollywood studio because Candidly, I'm a laptop lifestyle guy. I'm coming to you today sitting on my purple couch in my sumptuous Las Vegas apartment here in what some call the hottest city in America. I am surrounded by my podcast production team, which for those of you who are new means my cats. And we're going to have a conversation, the title of which is Uneducated. I love the uneducated, as somebody would say. Well, what this is about is the stigma of being the degreeless in the white-collar world and how this leads to social anxiety and imposter syndrome, that's a piece of it. But the other piece is we're going to be looking at some of the trends that we're seeing in terms of how companies assess applicants and recruits and the shifting of perceptions about the value of a degree or the necessity of a degree which is still very much a work in progress, but something that's pretty hot in the employment and recruiting market right now. And to guide us on this journey, we have Christopher Zara. He is an author and journalist who writes about culture, media, business, and tech. He's a senior editor of Fast Company, where he runs the news desk and leads a team that covers everything from startups and big tech to workplace culture and finance. He's the author of a book called Uneducated, which is a memoir about navigating the professional white-collar world without a college degree. And it tells you about his struggles as a student with behavioral difficulties in the New Jersey public school system, and later his efforts to assimilate as a high school dropout in the pedigree-obsessed world of New York media. So we're touching on another thing here, which is my thoughts about uh, the public education system and overall the mandatory education system here in the United States. So weaving together several of my own passion projects. Welcome, Christopher Zara. Come on in. The weather's fine. Hello, Adam. Thank you so much for having me on. It's nice to be here. Heck yeah. So uh, what we do here, and if you've been for those of our listeners who've checked this out, we have, uh, what we do is I will typically introduce the credentials of our guest and what i've told you about christopher is so impressive i'm not sure that i'm worthy to be in his presence and this is my show so i do that part from the official bio and then what we do is we turn it over to the guest pull back the curtain and christopher what i want you to do is in your own words tell us a bit about your journey 
and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. I think you uh, you covered it actually pretty well. I mean, I am a journalist who covers the business space uh, quite heavily. Uh, Fast Company is one of the leading business magazines with with a strong focus on technology and design and innovation and all the really cool aspects of of business, if you want to put it that way. I think we try to look at business through an innovation lens and through a lens of really trying to have business make the world a better place instead of a worse place, which it sometimes does. Um, My own personal journey comes into play with the book Uneducated that you just mentioned. Um, Being a journalist, especially a business journalist who covers complicated topics like finance and startup culture and things like that, um, my, uh, my own background as someone who not only didn't attend college, but really didn't finish high school um, is unusual. And it put me in in the position working in this business of media for such a long time that I thought uh, I could bring an unusual perspective to the topic of higher education and college and and how we treat that in the workplace, in the modern workplace uh, today in offices. I, I, I learned pretty quickly that I was one of the few at in the media world or in journalism that didn't go to college. And, uh-huh. you know, the neighborhood I came from, it wasn't unusual to not go to college. Like it was a pretty normal thing. So uh, it was a bit of a culture shock for me to then find myself surrounded by this very educated world where going to college is really seen as a, a necessary step. Um, and so that's where the book came from. Uh, and I found since I've written the book, I've gotten so much feedback from people who had have had similar experiences, whether they didn't attend college or didn't go to the right college or didn't. Sometimes they feel like they because they went to a state school, they don't measure up. There's all kinds of ways that education uh, has that we define ourselves based on our education and and the people we surround ourselves with. Um, so that's why I wanted to write write the story, and the, the story it's the story is is quite personal, but it's touched on as you mentioned. I think a really um, big topic right now in in the business world, which is how do we find talent in a way that doesn't shut out a large segment of the American population? When you look at the broad numbers, most people don't have college level education, and yet they're closed out of a lot of of a lot of jobs and a lot of businesses. So that actually, that bigger topic is what uh, I've been asked to talk about a lot since I've written the book. I, I did a, a talk on it at one of Fast Company's events a couple of months ago where I discussed this with startup um, leaders and and, and uh, entrepreneurs and people who are in the position to hire, um, asking questions like, what do we do about this issue? Like, how do we assess skills um, over college degrees? Um, so it's a really big issue, and it's a really fascinating one. It's been fascinating to watch that shift because, as someone who started in the media world, you know, almost twenty years ago now, um, these discussions I feel like were not happening at that time. So it's really been interesting yeah. to watch. Yeah, I'm uh, you know, age-wise, I'm a uh, Gen X millennial cusper. So I was born in the uh, later mid 1970s. So basically, what I am is. Um, 
I'm basically a millennial, but it didn't happen until I reached college, if that makes sense. So, so we're, uh, we're that's the best. The th- same, yeah, we were born in the same decade. I can put it to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, just just by looking at your uh, just by looking at your publicity photo, I guess that we were probably in the same cohort. So just I to put a frame, yeah. So just to put a framework on something that, because uh, again, I'm really passionate about what you're sharing with us and I'm gonna riff on this in just a moment. But first of all, uh, if you don't mind sharing, uh, you know, one of the things you alluded to in the green room is that something happened in high school uh, that caused yeah. you to only make it to the 11th grade. Yeah, so that's a different part of the story. Um, but what happened there was, well, school was not very successful for me. And I did attend one of these public uh, high schools in New Jersey that was quite overcrowded. It was the, it was the 1980s. Um, there wasn't a lot of time. Uh, the teachers, you know, God bless them, didn't have a lot of time or uh, energy to, to to deal with students who were uh, who had behavioral issues, and so when I entered my teen years, especially at ninth tenth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, I was a really bad student. Um, I didn't do well. I, I got mostly D's, and then started to fail a lot of classes. And I also started to act out in a behavioral way. And the te- the school system labeled me um, emotionally disturbed, which is a classification okay. in special education that allows them to stick you in a, in a special setting, essentially. Yeah. And so that's what happened to me. And it didn't let this, the special schools are not very accommodating. I, I there were a lot of fights there and a lot of violence uh-huh. and I, I didn't last long at the special school. And that was the end of my high school career. And it, it, in my neighborhood, if you got kicked out of high school, that was usually it. There was not, you know, a lot of, there, there wasn't a lot of attention put on higher education. I mean, people yeah. did go to college where I came from, but not, not many. And it was uh-huh. certainly not, it certainly was not unusual to like leave high school. And, and that was sort of the end of your, your school. So that was the end for me. I did get a GED that same year, but that's kind of as far as I went. Right. Right. So, uh, I was actually classified as gifted when I was in school, uh, to the point where I was skipped from the first of the second grade right in the middle of the school year, and they did a whole ceremony about it. Wow. So you can ima- you can imagine what happened to my social life for the uh, entire rest of my educational journey. That's interesting. I never thought of it from that perspective. My brother, yeah, it's yeah, it's the, the opposite thing. Yeah, it's the he- yeah, it's the one and only regret that my parents have and how they raised me is that uh, if they had to do over again, they would not have allowed them to skip me from one grade to to the next right in the middle of the year. And uh, and then on the other hand, if it had been absolutely necessary for my well-being somehow, they would have uh, moved me to a different school right in the middle of the year along with the grade change so that uh, that stigma was not placed upon me because it caused me a lot of problems now do you feel like you weren't ready to interact with the older kids is that it just feel like there was that's part of it that that, that was a big part of it i felt constantly out of place i never fit in um uh basically nobody liked me uh and uh (laughs) and so and there there's another layer of this which i'm going to get to in just a second and i think it and it it speaks to some of the trends today uh so if i had to do the experience over again uh, you know, you mentioned you took your GED because of what happened and you got kicked out of high school. Right. If I had to do over again, I would have demanded to take the GED because I would have looked at it and said, you know what? There is a minimum required 
level that I need to do here. I've already done 10 times more than that. This place is taking such a toll on my mental health. I'm in a place where I'm not sure I'm going to live to grow up. That's how bad it was. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the damn test and walk away from this and you all have fun. Now, I feel I was lied to at the time because I was told, well, if you drop out of high school and you get take the GED, then you're, you're done. I, that that's that that's it. Uh, yeah. You you might be you might be lucky to work flipping burgers somewhere. Well, it turns out, and maybe this is more of a recent thing, but I'm being told that this was even somewhat the case even back in the mid 1990s when all this was going on. Yeah, is that if you took the GED rather than getting a high school diploma. It wasn't the end of your life. You could actually still go to college, get accepted to a major university. But what they would typically do before they would accept you to like maybe a state school or an Ivy League or an elite private or something like that is they would say, well, what we want you to do is we want you to do a year of community college just to show that you're serious about this and to fill in some of the gaps that might have been between your diploma and GED. So go do a year of community and reapply. And uh, and I found out that a number of people actually took that path. In fact, right around that time, my my best friend at the time, his sister, uh, quote unquote, dropped out of high school. And uh, sh- two years later, she was in college. Yeah. I think I mean, and, and, and I don't mean community college. I mean, she actually was in a state school. So yeah. uh, so even in the 1990s, it was quite possible. She, I mean, I don't know what her story was, why she didn't follow the uh, officially designated path for completing secondary education. But it didn't slow her down one bit. I mean, uh, and she has the last time I checked, uh, she has a really good lifestyle now. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I think that like if you're really intentional about it like that and you know you and you have this plan, um, you can definitely do it that way. I uh-huh. think in my case, the issue was I didn't have a plan and I really didn't have a lot of adults around me at that time to to help me with a plan. I, yeah, the adults I had around me were the type who uh, told were telling me that my life was over. Um, another thing I wanted to do, and this is why I said I'd circle back to, and then I, I want to hear a lot more about your story here, is that um, after I survived high school, I wanted to take a year off before I went to college. And I don't like the term year off. I actually prefer the term that we use in today's world called gap year. And there were two reasons for it. One of which is, funny enough, I did have a job flipping burgers and I really liked it. I enjoyed that job. And uh, I actually, the the senior year of what they call high school, my only memories of that year that I keep with me that I think about are my experiences working flipping burgers because that was the only thing in my life that I felt was either fun or helping with my education. In fact, I feel I learned more working at that job than I did in school. Yeah, so you do I, you do learn a lot at those yeah. kinds of jobs. I worked a lot of retail. I mean, for mm-hmm. for a decade after my high school experience, I was in retail and working in shopping malls and things mm-hmm. like that. You learn a lot of workplace skills that are really that really apply to, to yeah. anywhere. Yeah, I mean I mean I mean let's look at some of the things you can learn uh you know as a as a as a line employee in fast food, you can you can learn about logistics, you can learn about supply chains, you can learn about um, staffing optimization, you can learn about teamwork, you can learn about organizational culture, uh, you can learn about uh, you can learn about uh, technical processes, you can learn about health safety. There are so many things that are part of that job, even if it looks like all you're doing is either flipping the burger or dropping the fries into the grease. But uh, 
you yeah. need to have all those skills. And if you work there just a little while, you will by default acquire all of them if you want them. I learned a lot about how profit margins worked when I worked at a Haagen-Dazs ice cream stand, which I actually uh, yeah. worked at for like three years. And the, uh -huh. and the bosses used to tell me, you know, me measure it out and and put it on a scale when you're scooping it because each tiny, you know, each scoop matters. And if like uh -huh. if each scoop is just that tiny bit bigger, we lose profit. And they used to put the math like on a not a chalkboard, but they'd write it down and say, "This is what we lose if you put yeah. a bigger scoop in there." Okay, after like a week, right. So I so I worked I worked at a Wendy's uh, and and uh, our store was actually an officially designated training store, which means that's the one where they sent all the management trainees to do their four weeks before they got their management job and moved on to their assistant manager job in another store. So um, our store did not have a general manager. His title was training store manager, which meant he got paid ten percent more basically, and he qualified for profit sharing. So. Um, I actually didn't like the guy at first. I thought he was kind of a jerk. Uh, but as I got to know him, I found out that he was actually one of the most erudite and nuanced individuals who, from whom I learned not only uh, a lot about business, but also about some of the realities of succeeding in the world. Uh, in some ways, he was kind of a gray area sort of guy. Uh, not, I mean, he was a good guy, uh, but he you know, had his own path. And it taught me a lot about the human condition and how to relate to people, you know, finding them where they are at any given time. Now, those of us in the business world may think of Dr. Tony Alessandro's platinum role. It was basically that, uh, just translated into burgers. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't know about platinum role until a few years later when I actually had the opportunity to have a conversation with Dr. Alessandro and it was pretty enlightening. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, so 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 finishing up that point is uh, going back to where I was. Uh, if I had insisted on that gap year, which I really should have done, bear in mind I was skipped from the first to the second grade, which means I also had yeah. the sociological disadvantage of always being the youngest. I was yeah, you were, the you were last person. Here, yeah. I was the last person to get a driver's license. I was the last person to turn eighteen. And uh, I'm going to say a phrase that everybody in America will understand. Picture yourself being at Penn State University, not being able to walk into a bar and have a legal drink until the middle of your senior year. That's a crime. Yeah. That should never be allowed. Yeah. Unless so you want to you talk, you want to talk about, you want to talk about this. Uh, well, uh, that was a that was a major college town and it was a funded state university. Believe me, uh, you weren't getting away with a fake ID up there. They, they knew, yeah. I had an older yeah. brother who kind of looked like me, so I used to I, I had I would just use his old license like for uh -huh. a couple of years, and that actually worked everywhere. I, I got in Atlantic City, all kinds of places with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my sister had a best friend who looked just like her, who was two years <laughs> older. She goes, she was getting, she was probably getting into bars before I was, believe it or not. Uh, and that, and that's that, and that's actually, and that, that's a real travesty. That tells you how disadvantaged I was. But uh, I didn't know anybody who looked like me, so I was kind of out of luck. Uh, so uh, yeah, so so what I love about this is, and we go to neuroscience and. You know, we call people adults at age 18, even though yeah. we don't let them drink until they're 21. I, I don't understand that. You can vote and you can get drafted to get killed for your country, but you can't drink. That's yeah. ridiculous. It's like you're either an adult or you're not. But let's leave that 
debate aside. It wasn't always like that, right? The, the generation right before me, they they got a, had a little bit easier because they were allowed to drink at 18. Exactly. Uh, in, some, in some states. It really started to change, I think, in the 70s and 80s. And then yep. by the time I was in high school, it was 21. But exactly. Ex- exactly. Also, it used to be that you had to be 21 to vote. So that's true. Now, yeah. So now... You can you can uh, you can volunteer or be drafted for the military and be sent to a forward combat area, and you can vote, but you can't drink. Where it used to be, you could drink and go in the military, yeah, but you couldn't vote. Yes, and exactly. now and now now it's a big issue in the 1960s with the counterculture movement. It's like you're drafting us to send us to Vietnam, and we don't even get a say in this. Yeah, that's you actually didn't never thought of it that way, but you're right. Yeah. That- that's kind of messed up. Yeah. So so let's leave aside. I think it should be all one thing. You're either an adult or you're not. But that being said, when you look at it neuroscientifically, we're not really adults until we're in our mid to late 20s. They say something like 25, 26 is yeah. for most people right about when you truly become an adult because the brain is physically still developing at a very fast pace up until that time, you're still acquiring a lot of knowledge and a lot of formation. So when I see somebody who's uh, 25 years old and still living with their parents, uh, my question is, is, okay, do you have a plan to move out in the next five years? Because up until now, you've basically been a kid. I mean, I didn't leave my parents' house until I was uh, 28. But part of the reason for that is I was, first of all, pursuing my MBA, which I got while working a full-time job. So I didn't want to deal with uh, an apartment. And then I decided I caught the entrepreneurial bug. So I was still working a full-time job and building a business. And I didn't want the maintenance of having my own place. Plus, I wanted to take as much money as possible and reinvest it in that business, which means if I wasn't paying rent, I was growing a business. Yeah. But I tell you, so- as, soon as, I, as soon as I got that business up full-time, psh, I was out of there in 45 days. But it was all part of the plan. Yeah, that was pretty normal. Like, I think for you know uh, people in my neighborhood to, to to live in with their parents for you know years too. I don't think that was unusual. I yeah. I, I actually had I, I got out when I was twenty five of my yeah. family's house. I had to, I had, but I had to, a different issue. I had, <laughs> yeah I had like these drug issues, so I had to like uh-huh. basically leave the state so I could get sober. And this was all yeah. Yeah, we out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we had different experiences, but we had faced some similar issues here. So, uh, you know, you know, I'm just curious. I mean, you know, how did you become an editor at a leading business magazine in New York City? Yeah, with only a GED, because I I know enough about uh, traditional and legacy media to know that education credentials are everything. So how did yeah, you pull it off? Well, it's. A lot of lucky breaks, uh, a lot of being at the right place at the right time, a lot of um, a, a lot of hard work. I mean, I so essentially what happened was I was I'm probably like, you know, mid 30s and still working retail jobs and really at this point saying I need to change my life and do something different and do something real. I just like I was very unhappy in and my early to mid 30s and so i decided i'm going to try to pursue a writing career and i went i came to new york city i didn't really know what journalism was i knew enough about it that i knew how to do it which kind of is is a weird way to say it but like i didn't know the business i didn't know i didn't know other journalists i didn't know how it worked 
I came to New York City and I got a uh, an internship. It was unpaid um, at a newspaper that was called Show Business Weekly, and it was um, one of these actor trade papers for Broadway. Um, covered the business of of entertainment, the business of theater. It was a really business focused newspaper. The problem with it was that it was a dying newspaper and a dying business model. This was 2005, and no one was reading these kinds of newspapers anymore. Everyone was finding this information online. Um, so it was good and bad. It was good in the sense that I got to be thrown into this situation where, uh, because someone left, I became an editor there and then was suddenly really kind of running the whole ed editor editorial department at this small newspaper. So I learned everything about the newspaper business, about journalism, all these little at a, in, on a very small scale. Yeah. Um, the issue, the problem was that the, the business model was already doomed when I got there and it was not a viable um, place to to build a career because the, new, the newspaper was never going to last mm -hmm. more than a few more years. Uh, right. But I did get five or, or I, almost six years there. And in that six years, I learned basically the business of journalism. And, you know, uh, when that paper folded, I, I had enough under my belt that I could find other work doing it. And then I found another job at an online publication called International Business Times. And this was right around the time when all these online publications, Business Insider, Huffington Post, um, what are some of the other ones that were really big? BuzzFeed, all these, these were all like exploding at this time when I first join that place and yeah it was like a gold mine for for us for a hot second everyone thought online media was going to be this really profitable industry it's really hilarious to think of it now <laughs> i know i know and some of those companies you listed have had some serious financial yeah, troubles now exactly. and and, and, I mean, I, and i and i think part of that is actually uh just the changing environment has led them to have to do massive restructuring i mean yes. i think i think part of it was mismanagement but another part of it is just the market changed really fast and really dramatically it was a it was a wild ride for for me because when we were at IBT Media, which is what they called themselves, they bought Newsweek. They were growing at this like crazy pace, and this was like mid two thousand ten. So it was like two thousand sixteen. Mm -hmm. Everyone just thought there was like this this kind of business model was like sustainable, but it was all based on this this enormous growth um, of audience that was not sustainable. You just right. can't keep growing. And BuzzFeed learned this too. Like, yeah, you're growing one year and growing the next year, but you can't keep mm. doing that. And right. eventually the advertisers catch on or they find other places to go. Um, it becomes really difficult to make money selling digital ads. Everyone knows now, I think, that it's a really difficult business. But Oh, it, 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 it is. I mean, what's happening with digital ads now is what happened to print ads 10 years ago. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the idea of actually being in a business where you connected advertisers to the newspapers doesn't exist anymore. Because at this point, you want to put an ad in a newspaper, you just call the newspaper. They will rush to take your call and get your money. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know how many people you're going to reach with a with a local newspaper these days. That that that's a, that, I don't remember last time I've seen a local newspaper. I yeah. I mean I and I and I I'm in Las Vegas. I read the Review Journal, but I haven't held one in my hands in a long time. I think I I think I might see them at the supermarket, but I go to RJ.com. Yeah, I mean I still love to read the Financial Times and the New York Times in print, but I don't see a lot of classifieds ads in there and the classified right. ads is what really used to sustain these businesses um but the you know the 
the bigger point here is that there were basically two business models that I watched collapse within the span of, I would say, 10 or 12 years in, in journalism. It was first watching this newspaper collapse from, from under me, which was really hard to do because I, I did want it to succeed. And then the second was getting into the online media game and watching that kind of build and then collapse um, also within the span of a few years. Um, so it was a, these were big life lessons about how business works and about how every, it's constantly being disrupted. Now everyone's talking about AI like suddenly this year. Um, so it now again feels like we're in this moment where the the, the floor is shifting under us. And it's like, it, it's the media world has always felt like that to me. I've, I'm not old enough to remember when it was ever stable. Yeah, right. So uh, so overall, uh, you know, you have, you have this lack of a quote unquote formal, edu- formal education. Yeah. So what impacts has that had on your overall approach to news coverage? I know that's a broad question. So yeah. uh, if you could bring that in for us a little bit. Yeah, these were things I noticed, I think, slowly over time. I mean, one of the things I really wanted to do when I first, especially when I first got to Fast Company, because it was well, it's well established, well liked, and I I didn't know a ton about it. So I had to learn how to uh, sort of, I had to learn how to adapt and fit into that world. I've been there about seven years now, but when I first got there, my MO was really just to fit in. Um, I went to all the events. I did all the things you're supposed to do. I met with startup founders and interviewed CEOs and things like that. Um, but I did notice a pattern right around the 2016 election. It is, you know, when when um, when Trump was rising in, in popularity, and there was a lot of Great. talk about the, the the white working class and how that was discussed. Um, there was a lot of talk about education as this big fault line. Yeah. Politics. And there still is. I mean, if you look at the data, I do. I think there's definitely truth to that. Like, uh-huh. um, so I felt like at that time, you know, to be honest, like I didn't cover it in the way that I really wanted to um, because right. I, I was afraid to out myself, if that makes sense. I yeah yeah I I, I I I get what you mean. Now this is not a political podcast. And I don't want to go down this road. I'm only going to say this just to help and you know inform yeah, your sure. point even further. But you know when you think of when you think of President Trump, you think of uh, him saying "I love the uneducated." That's one of the yeah. phrases that he's uh, said at the various rallies and speeches that has just really become not only a catchphrase, but part of our lexicon. I love the uneducated. I love the uneducated. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and also, full disclosure, I voted for him both times. Uh, okay. And well, part I, of the, and, yeah. I imagine it might be different for some of our listeners. Maybe the same or different for you. I don't know. Um, and the only reason I'm saying that, because I want to explain very briefly why, because I think it's important to this conversation. Um, I like some of his policies. Uh, you know, in, in our political system, you're not going to find any candidate that lines up 100% with every single thing you want, like a smorgasbord. So yeah. they say, choose a lesser of two evils. Maybe once in a while, you're going to find one where you agree with maybe 50 to 60% of what they're proposing. Uh, his first, you know, his 2016 platform, I think I liked about 70% of it. But the main reason is I felt that our political system and our society needed shaken up and who better to do that than somebody with a lifelong reputation as a wrecking ball yeah i um, I even i even said at the time his role would be to shake things up um reforming and rebuilding would be the role of his successor whoever that would be yeah so we're there now i mean i hope i hope hope that you know we i hope we can see that the wrecking ball uh 
analogy is actually a, a good one because that's yeah. what happened. And you know, I I I would argue, you know, in, in, if we're being uh, transparent about it, my own thought, my own feeling about it in 2016 was the exact opposite. I didn't want to recognize. Yeah. I still right. don't. Right. Um, my, you know, to get back to how I covered in the, in the uh, in the, the news world, like you know, I did feel like there was this narrative that people who didn't graduate college uh, were obviously Trump supporters, and uh, I was not. So like this was, you know, this this was to me already this narrative that was being put out there, and. Um, yeah, I, I do wish I had covered it diff differently, but I wanted yeah. to, there was just, there was such an intense, like, desire on my part to fit in uh -huh. with my colleagues, and, right. and that's what, so that's what I did in, all, in, in that era, in that time period. Yeah, and let's, and let's remember again, your book is called Uneducated, and your whole life story is about being, quote unquote, uneducated, yeah. so... Uh, first of all, Donald Trump loved you. So just know that you can feel his love because he loves the uneducated. But it also raised that question of is how do we define educated? And uh, one of the things I'm loving to a degree, and I'd like to see more of it, is you're seeing companies like Google, GM, IBM that are starting to relax their degree requirements now. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, in, I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, as far as their as far as their requirements for certain uh, government jobs at the you know at the state level, the Commonwealth level, they're also significantly re reducing their degree requirements and changing the focus to the ability to pass a civil service test with a combination of actual experience. Yeah, a lot of states are doing that now. I think my my own home state of uh, New Jersey did re recently did the same thing. Um, I'm not sure about New York yet, but yeah, yeah I, that's that's those two things are happening at the same time with the big companies you just mentioned, um, Google and IBM and and Delta Airlines. They're right around. You know, I think they've been doing this for a while, but the pandemic really sort of accelerated it with the the labor shortages that they've been facing they've realized they need to open up their um their talent pools to more people and one of the best ways to do that is to measure people differently and not and not just look at this one credential this academic credential as the deciding factor on whether or not you hire people um so what i think's happened is they're trying to be a little bit more uh intentional about how they find their talent and um, to different, I think, probably varying degrees of success. Um, but I'm glad it's happening and I'm glad people are talking about it because for a long time, uh, there were places that you just couldn't get into. Um, there was no, you know, my own experience aside, I think I'm an anomaly in the sense that I just got lucky that people didn't ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but most people don't have that experience, especially now with these uh, on, you know, these application tracking systems that everyone has. Uh -huh. like it's impossible to get through those kinds of systems. Um, so I, I am glad that there is a, a willingness on the part of these big companies to rethink how they hire. Yeah, I yeah, and I think I think that's really really good. I mean, I would be what you would consider the educated. I completed my degree at Penn State and then I went on to Duquesne University and got my MBA. So yeah, I would be among the highly educated. Those uh, are good schools, yeah, 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 and uh, and I feel and I feel that I gained a lot from those experiences. Uh, now, if I had to do them over again, I would, but I would approach them differently. So it's, fu it's funny because like if I had it to do over again, I would love to 
go back yeah. and do it the right way. Like this is part of the big part of the book actually is just uh-huh. my, you know, sort of realizing what I missed out on. And part of realizing it was because I work with so many great colleagues who all attended these great schools. And it mm-hmm. it did make me realize, wow, there's something I missed out on. When I was a kid, you know, when I was a, te- a teenager, I worked on the, the campus of Princeton University <laughs> in one of the dining clubs, uh, ser- serving foods to, to people a lot richer than me. Um, yeah. I think even Brooke Shields was there at the time. Uh, and th- that campus is one of the most beautiful campuses um, in the country that I've ever seen. I live also near Columbia University now, that another beautiful campus. But like when I go on these campuses, I just have this yearning for like something that I never had. Yeah. Well, here's my here's my thought about it. Um, I chose Penn State because I wanted to go to a big school. Uh, I came from a really small town and we've already covered my experiences uh, yeah. and the education system there. We don't need to revisit that. Plus, I want to make sure we have plenty of time because we have a few other points I want to cover. Yeah. Uh, but what I liked about Penn State is I did my first two years at uh, a branch cap a branch campus, which, you know, in their terminology, they call them Commonwealth campuses, but it was a branch campus. And then mm-hmm. after that, I transferred to uh, State College University Park. And where there are, I think, 40,000 students, or at least at the time there were 40,000 students. It's a bigger number now. And uh, what I loved about it is the fact that it was so big and I didn't have to find a clique to fit in with just to survive. I didn't have to have those feelings of being an outsider because I wasn't accepted by a certain group of people. And I also could be parts of different groups and different things. Like I could be three different things in one day. I mean, uh, I could, I could be the, uh, I could be the student sitting in the front row, diligently taking notes, uh, uh, in class. Then, uh, mid to late evening, I go down to the student union building and I play and I play board games. And then after that, I go down to the bars and get freaking smashed. Yeah. Those are three different lifestyles. Uh, plus some other things you can explore in a type of university environment that we don't really need to discuss on this call, but I think our listeners can uh, fill in their own meanings as to what that is. And that's part of the university experience. So if I had to do it over again, there's two changes I would have made. Uh, change number one is I would have done a hell of a lot more of what I just described. Change number two is I wouldn't have worried about my grade so much. Because, yeah. Um, because yeah, I remember you, in high school, you, you, you needed the grades to get into the to the uh, the master's program. Let me. Uh, I'm I'm going to develop that for you in just a second. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, my overall grade point average was just below three point five on the four point scale, which means I never qualified for this thing called the National Honor Society, which I was told, if you don't belong to the National Honor Society, you're never going to go to a good college, and you might as well get ready for a $35,000 a year job working in, the, working in a grunt position, okay? Well, the National Honor Society, and I'm not putting them down, but basically that's a membership club. It has really no impact other than a line on your resume. Uh, I did finish high school with a 3.5 grade point average because in the final nine weeks of my senior year, a grade I got on a 10 point quiz in my English class rounded up and kicked the whole thing over the 3.5. Uh, they wanted me to go to the grad, 
graduation ceremony, which I wanted to skip first off, but since I was forced to go to it, they wanted me to wear the uh, the 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 gold cord and the blue cord that would indicate that I was honors. But the fact is, um, I was graduating high honors, so I should have the two yellow cords. But they tried to say, well, we only count up until the third nine week period, so your honors. Like, no, 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 I'm high honors. I'm graduating with a three point five two. So I did wear the two gold cords because they relented. But if it hadn't been for that, my uncle uh, was had already loaned me. Um, he still had his gold cord from when he had graduated, and I was just gonna while I was uh, while I was in the audience uh, waiting to be called up, I was gonna just take off the blue cord and put on my uncle's yellow cord. So I had two yellow ones and dare them to say something. Do the old switcheroo, yeah, exactly, exactly. So. You know when the last time anybody ever asked uh, what my grade point average was in high school? I can't it, imagine the people of Penn the people of Penn State. As soon as they were as soon as they were satisfied, they had the <coughs> financial aid. I mean grades. They let me in. Uh, I finished uh, I finished uh, Penn State with something like um, it was something like a three point five one. I don't have it in front of me, and I'm off. I'm off, I'm off by like point three, a three point five one overall. But there's a but there's a separate QPA for your major where I had a three point seven. So if I had to do it again, I would have uh, I would have not pulled all nighters over Gen Ed classes, which you know <clears throat> I would have just I would have just gone all in. I I would have gotten as close as to I could for to a four zero on the major classes, and uh, as long as I was three something. And the rest of it, I was fine, because the last time anybody asked about my, uh, you know, the last time anybody asked about my uh, grades at Penn State is Duquesne University. When you were making sure I, I had the grade, excuse me, uh, could get the funding to uh, pay for it. Last time anybody ever asked. So, uh, and a little bit more about the MBA. I. Entered the MBA program two years after I finished undergrad. So I finished undergrad. I uh, had a couple jobs, one of which was so bad, I actually wrote a chapter in a book about it, uh, Journeys to Success <laughs> and Millennial Edition. I celebrate the day I was uh, I was fired as my second birthday, April 27th, and uh, for reasons that are covered in the book. Uh, and uh, one, of those, in one of those jobs was working as a recruiter for a temporary staffing agency. So one of my contacts was the head of the human resource department for both graduate and undergrad at Duquesne University. His name was Dr. Jay Leibowitz. He's retired now. He's a great guy. And so one day, and I was used to interacting with him because every time we needed to uh, place somebody to, on a temp assignment as a recruiter or an HR analyst or something, he was my first call. And uh, he sent me a lot of great referrals, uh, you know, people who are looking for temp work. Uh, so I called him up one day and I said, you know, I've been thinking about this MBA. And he said, yeah, when are you going to apply? I said, I don't know. I graduated from Penn State with a degree in political science, and that was two years ago. So do you want somebody with an unrelated, with a non-business degree who's been out of school for two years? And he said, well, actually, you're the perfect candidate because you've been in the world. You've seen how business works. You're going to appreciate the MBA more as you understand the problems and how what we teach you in the MBA is going to help you solve those problems. Plus, think about it. You come into my program, you get a concentration in HR management, which was my concentration, by the way. 
and combine that with your undergrad, you could become a uh, you could become an HR director for Exxon or Amco, some big oil company. And I so never, and it's like, wow, I'd never thought of it that way. So the political science, which means we're getting into international politics, geopolitics, which is a big deal when you're in the oil industry. Yeah. Combine that with, uh, and combine that with, uh, and it, with my work experience, in my MBA. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I definitely applied and I absolutely got in. Uh, so the other point I want to make there is the whole idea that just because you pause your education, there's a gap doesn't mean you lose your skills. In fact, I would, in fact, what I found more and more is that people will tell you to lose your skills if you don't do it are the ones who profit by you uh, forcing ahead when maybe you shouldn't. Yeah. And this is a point I've made too. Like, you know, you're, you obviously have firsthand experience with this because you attended the schools and went through the process. Um, uh -huh. Part of my perspective as someone who covers the, the business world um, is that it's the schools that really profit from the system that we have right now. Yeah. And this is, again, not an anti-college uh, statement in any way. Right. I think like part of the thing I like to say when I'm talking about this book is like this is not an anti-college book and I'm not an anti-college person at all. In fact, I, you know, really, again, oh. like I, as, as I mentioned earlier, like wish I had gone. Um, yeah. But there's there is uh, we have a system right now. I think as we discuss, it's getting it's it's getting better. It's changing, but we still do have a system that that's pretty much geared toward one type of uh, one type of credential, and that's the college degree. And uh, and who benefits from that? <laughs> it's the it's the schools because that they can charge the premium, right? And they can right. sort of they can they can set the tone because because we need them because workers need them because the business because everybody needs them for the networking and and everything. So like. I, I think that if we had a system where there were the Googles of the world were thinking differently about how to hire and and who to hire, um, we might have a world where the schools have a little bit less of a stranglehold over the the broader system, and that might be a yeah. better system. Yeah, yeah, it could possibly be. So think about you know think about some other things that are going on, like uh, like uh, the high schools. They don't. They one of the reasons that they don't want some student to show up and say, you know what, I need 21 credits to graduate. I'm just going to do this in three years. They don't want you to do that. They want you to sit there the whole four years. Oh, and they don't want you to homeschool either. Yeah, you know, I can imagine. Yeah, it, yeah you know, you know, you know <laughs> the reason they don't the, love the, the reason yeah. why the reason why is very simple. They get funding based on headcounts. Yeah. If they if they if they if the, yeah and if and if students find out that they can legally crack the code because um, one path could have been I could have taken the GED and another could have been is, all right, I'm going to do this for three years, no study halls. I, I just, you know, forget study hall. I'll just take another class. Oh, and there's this little thing that since you have to take four English classes, you're actually allowed to take junior and single, senior English at the same time. You know, the special education system works that way, too. I don't yeah. know a ton about this because I only just started to research it because of my own experience. But there's the, it's based on headcount. Like there's yeah. how many students are in the special education system is how, that de determines how much money uh, schools will get districts right. like that for the next years or whatever. So um, it, there's definitely an incentive to, you know, if you work in those systems to uh -huh. have students in them. Um, right. Not always to the benefit of students. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know, in in my day, uh, 
if uh, somebody was uh, like a like had a behavior issue, like they were getting in fights or doing things that got them suspended several times or whatever, they would be rerouted into what was called alternative education, yeah. uh, which was described to those of us who didn't know it as basically uh, basically the next step toward a lifetime in prison. Uh, yeah. But you know, the funny thing is, is uh, just for kicks, I still remembered a few of the names of the people who had gone into the alternative education program because I'd been in a couple of my classes. And ironically, those are the ones that I could sort of get along with. It's, it's, it's funny how that works. That should have been an indicator. And so I looked up a few of the names and I, and I saw, oh, wait, this guy, he was an alternative education. He's a, he's a $10 million producer realtor. Oh, her, wait, she, she has, she has, uh, she's a financial advisor with a $100 million portfolio. Oh no! Oh wait, this guy—he's—he's a—he's—he's a general contractor building five hundred thousand dollar houses. Wait, I, I thought I thought these were the losers. I thought these were the uh, I thought these were the cases that uh, that they'd given up on. Now, so that be a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So that got me thinking: Did getting out of the regular high school environment help them in some way that might not have been immediately apparent? And what you alluded to is something that's not exactly a new thought to me is were they looking for a certain headcount, the alternative education program? So they were just basically looking at, okay, we got to, we got to find X number of people. So let's just look at um, who's been in the most fights and we'll just toss them in there. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that there's, there's that bit of uh, head counting that goes on. Yeah. Um, Again, I, I don't know a ton about how that works. I do, I do I have re researched it a bit recently because um, I, I did want to, I was writing, working on an op-ed about the, uh, the label emotionally disturbed, which is a terrible label that no one likes. Uh, yeah. It's been around since the 60s um, and it got into the federal education law, special education law, and it's still used today, um, but no one seems to like it. I, when I really researched the origins of the term, what it means, how it's diagnosed, and all these different things. All I kept seeing was criticism of it. And yet there it is in federal law, and no one's changed it. So it's kind of an interesting journey there for this this one term that affects really hundreds of thousands of kids each year because it determines what schools they're allowed to go to. Yep. Trump wrecking ball. He said he was he said he was going to smash that whole thing up. And yeah. uh and, and, that, that and, that, and that, that's what I meant by <laughs> I felt we needed a wrecking ball while acknowledging that there was going to need to be a separate rebuilding process because I, I, I look at it this way. Um, let's say that you uh, wanted to build a house somewhere. So you find this nice piece of land. It's about an acre. It's got a nice yard. You can do a little farm if you want. Uh, if, uh, if you have kids, there's plenty of room for them to play. You can put it in a gazebo and all that. And on this land, there is this decrepit old house. It's one step away from condemnation. So you want to tear down that old house and build your dream house. You're going to bring in one company to demolish the old house and clear the space, but you're going to hire another company to build the new house simply because different phases, different skills, different competencies. Uh, that's true. But what happens when the, the company that you hired to, to destroy the house then does just wants to stay on the lot and doesn't leave? 
most demo, <laughs> most demolition companies don't do that. Um, I, 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 I saw what you did there. I saw what you did there. And, um, and, uh, but, uh, as far, and, and I know, you know, we have a wide range of listeners who have all kinds of different opinions on that. So I'm not going to share what mine is, but, uh, but what I would, but what I will say is, uh, going along with that analogy, it's also part of the demolitions comp demolition company's job typically to clear the space, which means take out all the debris, take out all the rubble. An alternative to that is you bring in another person who, uh, you know, picks up all the wiring and sells the copper or comes in and takes the lumber because they can repurpose it or what have you. So sometimes people will tear down the old house and they'll say, okay, well, I'm going to bring so-and-so who are going to buy this stuff from me, or they'll pay the demolition company, just haul it all off. But the bottom line is there's supposed to be uh, an empty space there. We can build a new yeah. house. I, I would just add to that that you know even dem even demolishing something takes a lot of <laughs> a lot of skill and careful planning. Uh, we have oh, yeah. a lot of big buildings in New York City, for example, one of my favorite uh, hotels, the Hotel Pennsylvania. They just demolished it. If you saw the way they did that, the the planning mm -hmm. that went into the scaffolding that has to go up around it, so they can like take it down from the middle, and and it's like it's a mate like it's it's almost a work of genius to dismantle. Yeah like that so uh, i see what you're saying but i also think that if you're gonna find the person to dismantle you it's got to be again i think the right person and we can disagree on who who that who that is um, that's that that's you know that's the beauty of our system is we can have these conversations um we can bring our different viewpoints and and uh and between the two of us or the group of us yeah. we can uh we can collectively come up with better solutions than each of us could do on our own simply because we put all of our ideas out there and we find the best of the best. That's true. It and, takes a and, lot of different ideas. Yeah. And that, and that, and that's, is, and that's what I, and I think as a, is a closing thought before I tell people uh, where to go uh, to connect with you further is that, uh, you know, when we look at different types of qualifications for jobs and careers. Uh, we bring in different perspectives because the so-called uneducated, bring things to the table that people who have done nothing but be in the classroom don't have. And the people who have done the entire classroom route have a different perspective that makes the street smart version even smarter. I agree. I, I think it takes both of those kinds of people to, to make thing to make things work properly. And I, and I think that like my own workplace experience um, shows that I get, I get along with everybody uh and mm -hmm. i don't um mostly and not everybody no one gets along with everybody but i get along with most people and you know i i, I don't sit around and ask where they where they came from or what kind of school they went to like it's right not it's not about that when you're when you're in a work environment you know i applied for a job once and uh and it was uh it was a small entrepreneurial thing and uh i remember I, I ended up not, they ended up actually not hiring me because they decided not to create a position. They, they were interviewing me because they were thinking about creating a position, but they decided ultimately not to, which was fine. But I remember the guy, um, he was a, he was a man, I think he was in his fifties. He had founded the company. It was a $5 million company. It was a, it was on the rise. And he said to me, you know, I, I, you know, I saw your resume and all that. And I see you went to Penn state and that's great. And uh, I'm sure that if we decide that we can work together, that you're going to bring a lot to the table from that. But the bottom line is, when I look at people I want to hire, whatever school you went to is the right one. Yeah, that's a good and, way. And, I, and I think about that, regardless of what college 
or university or technical score, whatever you went to, or whether your education was the street smart version, it was the right one. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the branding is so powerful though. And this is the thing that I, I have noticed um, in the, in the journalism business, there are particular schools that really uh, sing the, the names just sing Columbia J school or North. Oh Carolina. yeah. Oh yeah. And so like the branding is really powerful. And like, mm-hmm. even for myself, I'm in a hiring position at times, you know, I didn't yeah. go to college. I didn't finish high school, but when I see those resumes like that, you know, it's hard, it's really hard to not be uh, have that feel the allure of those schools and what they, what they mean and what they say. Yeah. Like, like, I, like I can tell you, if you're in engineering, agriculture or sociology, Penn State is a big plus. Yeah. Because those are three things that that university is known for. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably for good reason, I, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, all their programs are excellent, but uh, those are those are three of the areas where they just have a really great reputation. And uh, and sometimes just having that line on your resume opens a door. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But, but, but at the same time, we want to make sure that anybody who can do those jobs has the opportunity to open that door too. And I, and I really have enjoyed this conversation and, uh, and us putting some ideas out there so our listeners can draw their own conclusions and decide uh, how they feel about it. So here's what I want our listeners to do as we wrap up here. You got to check out Christopher Zara's website and it's basically his name. It's ChristopherZara.com. So C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-Z-A-R-A.com. If you're on our website, go to the show notes, you'll see the link. When you go to that website, you're going to see a link right at the top of the front page. And it's a link to buy the uneducated book. Uh, Book list says that Zara writes a necessary and inspiring story about how we are more than our educational histories, and I could not agree more. So we've touched on a little bit of Christopher's journey. He and I have gone back and forth in mastermind format about some of our thoughts about uh, credentialization, degrees, the education system in general, and some societal trends. Uh, This book takes it to a whole other level, and I am absolutely going to have to go pick up my copy as well. You can get a hardcover, you can get an ebook, and you can get an audiobook. So make sure to go to www.christopherzera.com and pick that up. And with that, Christopher, thank you so much. It has been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for, thank you for having me. It's been really great. I've enjoyed this very much. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the business creators radio show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.